guys. Welcome to Overcrest. I'm Chris. And I'm Jake. And all is not bad news. I know that the title of this one is uh, The Truth <laughs> The truth Hurts. And uh, we're having Tom Fisher on the podcast. He's a graduate of Cornell University. Uh, he graduated. He's got a degree in architecture. And he's at Case Western Reserve University in intellectual history. He's the editorial director of Progressive Architecture Magazine. Reckoned in 2005. Recognized in 2005 as the fifth most published writer about architecture in the United States. Wow. He's written nine books and over 50 chapters and, and introductions and over 400 articles in professional journals and major publications. He's a smart guy. I was a little intimidated, admittedly. Named a top 25 design educator four times by Design Intelligence. He has lectured at 36 universities and over 150 professional and public meetings. He's written extensively about architecture design, practice, and ethics, which is kind of why I wanted to talk to him. Sure. Uh, his newest book, Designing Our Way to a Better World, will come out in spring of 2016, so that's already out, and is working on a book called On Demand Cities. Interesting. So I really wanted to talk to him about, you know, I see him as the establishment, right? So he talks to the legislators and, you know, kind of, he, he's a professor. And a lot of the professors for universities and stuff are kind of like the engine. They're seen as the intellect, right? Sure. They're smarter than all of us, which is true. So they have to kind of help coordinate with legislators and find ways to get things done and move society forward. Or so they say that's what they're doing. <laughs> and so I was really polite in this interview. I don't agree with a lot of what he said, but I'm really, really interested in what he had to say. And I think you guys will be too. Um, so uh, that's going to be coming up a little bit later in the episode. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about our sponsor, WeatherTech? Yeah. So before we do that, the holidays are right around the corner, Chris. And you should make WeatherTech one of your stops when checking it off your shopping list. With a variety of amazing products to choose from, WeatherTech offers many great gift-giving ideas. Their famous floor liners and cargo trunk liners are laser-measured and custom-fit to protect your car's carpet and keep it looking like new. They're also easily installed and removed for cleaning. Seat protectors are also great. They protect your car's seat surface from scratches, damages, spills, and if if you're looking for stocking stuffers, car coasters catch and hold messes from condensation and coffee drips. So that's really cool. You can put them right there in your cup holder as well. Um, for those hard to buy friends and family members, you could always just give a WeatherTech gift card as well. Possibilities are endless. And all you need to do is go over to WeatherTech.com to check those out. Also, they're giving away two $50 WeatherTech gift cards to our listeners by going to WeatherTech.com slash Overcrest. All right. So before we get to Tom Fisher, have you been working on your car at all now that it's winter? Not really. I have tried. <laughs> <laughs> so I saw that. I have to figure out a way to get it up in the air, and I bought jack stands. So I right. bought these A-frame. So your whole convoluted concept of putting it up on a wooden... I talked to Aaron, and he's like, you don't want that thing moving around. No. No. So I just bought flat top jack stands. So it's Why like, flat top? Where else am I going to put it? Where well, else I am know. I going to put like that little C shape that, yeah. you know, where am I going to put that on my car with no know. suspension on the car? Nowhere. Yeah. They make little pads that go on them. Sure. They kind of go over the top of the, okay. the, the C part of the, yeah. I don't know what that's called. Like the, it's the, a, it's a saddle maybe sa the saddle. That's a great way to put it. The saddle of the, of the stand, but those, I guess get bad reviews. They crack and they're meant to go on the pinch welds anyway. Mm. And I don't have, I do have pinch welds, but not really. At the same time, because <laughs> okay. my oil lines are in the way. There's oh, no way to do yeah, it. it's not as so accessible. I got these flat top, flat top stands, which are basically, they look like the top of a hoist pad. Like sure. If you have, an, yep, if you have a car those. hoist. So I'm really excited to use those, get the, get it up in the air. I go, I'm like, I take the hood off the car. I'm sitting in there. Jess unscrews it while I'm in there holding on to it. I saw that. Yep. We pull the hood off. I throw it in the basement, come back up, 
slide the jack under, and my jack is dead. <laughs> you sit there pumping, and nothing It happens. worked the first couple times, and then it was just nothing. Ugh. And to be fair, the jack is, I've been like, oh, there's a little bit of hydraulic. <laughs> it's right slowly now. leaking slowly to leaking. death. <laughs> so it's officially dead. It's a great jack. It's an old Torin, yeah. big red, and it's, yep. it's really long. And low, and it's got a wheel in the middle, so it spins on an axis. That is kind of cool. Really like, plus, it's got a foot pedal, so if you want to get up to a spot quick, you just hit the foot pedal a couple times, boom, it's up. It's a great, super kick-ass jack that is now broken. And uh, one mm. of the rear Delrin wheels is broken as well, so I've got to get new wheels for it. Um, probably get new seals. So rather than buy a new jack, you are rebuilding. I'm going one. to rebuild this jack because I don't see any other jacks out there that are even close to being as good or cool as this jack was. Huh. And it's lasted me forever. I mean, it was expensive. I think it was probably three or $400 jack. Mm -hmm. It was a really, really expensive jack. I was at Northern Tool when I got it. This was years ago. And there was an engine stand. I bought an engine stand or hoist right. at the same time. And I think they were both like $300 or $350 a piece. I said, hey, I'll buy both of these if you give them to me for $650. And the guy went, okay, and then just gave it to me. So I got like, that's a, you can always negotiate or I always know. try. So I've had this conversation with people. I never realized that. You can go anywhere and negotiate. Why not? There's no rules. No. Absolutely. Do whatever Worst you want. Worst thing can say is no, but that's no. That's exactly My it. wife's mom, so my mother-in-law does this anywhere. Like stuff you wouldn't think of. You'd go to Target and she's there at the register like, oh, this is missing a sticker. Are you sure you can't give it to me for a little bit? off and most of the time they're like they'll just okay. whatever and they just type right. it in or whatever yeah so you can you can always negotiate that's something that i always learned when i worked at best buy is there's always margin you know i'd be yeah. like hey i'm gonna walk i'll go get it on amazon tell me what can you do and sometimes you feel like kind of a cheapskate but hey it's, it's your money anyway so that's your uh, holiday shopping advice <laughs> on overcrest i uh so i called up Torin. they called me back some lady some lady called me back she goes oh yeah i missed a phone call from this number i'm at Torin. I'm like, uh, yeah, I need a seal kit for this jack. <laughs> it's really kind of this weird, you know, she's super Canadian sounding. So I'm going to get the jack fixed. So I did nothing on the car, basically. So I'm fixing things so I can fix my car. <laughs> there you go. I yeah, like that's, that. That's awesome. So that's where we're at with my car. Um, so not too, not entirely a lot going on. I have to change a subframe bushing on the Audi that I'm not looking forward to. Why? What's it? Clunks. Oh, yeah, you've been talking about that for a while. Yeah, but I finally figured out what it was, and then I ordered the bushing, and so I have it, and I'm looking at it, and you're supposed to disconnect every single A-arm in the suspension to drop the subframe. You know, you have to disconnect the motor mounts as well, and then take the subframe into your press and press out the old one and press in the new bushing and then put it all back together. I don't want to do that. There's, in all the, since the inception of knowing you, you've had that RS4. Mm-hmm. There are, has been zero times when I think that that car is a good idea to own. It's actually been very good. But you're always complaining about how much of a nightmare it is to work on anything. It is, but luckily nothing catastrophic has gone wrong. No, but just changing out a <laughs> knock on wood. A uh, particle board does not count. Okay, um, well. I don't know, man. When you talk about just doing a bushing, and you have to re that sounds really lame. So here's my plan, though. I'm going to somehow cut out the old bushing and just use my jack to press it in for the bottom without yeah. removing the subframe. There's always ways around doing things. When yeah. I listen to Chad over at South Central Imports, the Volkswagen <laughs> shop here, all the ways that he comes and figures out to, to just kind of work around, just work around to do it easier and do it faster. Yeah. Time is money. This will not be faster or easier, but I will have to do less work, hopefully. Well, that's kind of the way that it is. All right, let's talk to Tom Fisher. Let's get on the uh, get on the phone with him 
and play the interview for you guys. I hope you enjoy it. It's kind of a, a little look into the window of the other side. Not that we're like polar opposites in terms of I am like this anti-progress kind of guy, but I think it's really interesting to hear um, kind of a what, different viewpoint, a different viewpoint. All right. We are here with Tom Fisher, the professor, director of Minnesota Design Center and the Dayton chair in urban design. And I think that well, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate Happy it. Happy to be here. Yeah, it's it's uh it's great to have you here. I've been looking forward to this. Honestly, a little intimidated. You know, I I never graduated from college, so you're the you're the opposite of me in that regard. That's okay. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Um, and I think your perspective is going to be unique, not only with your education that's been focused on architecture, but um, with your intellectual history as well. And you told me that you did a, a big study on steam and electric cars mm -hmm. at the turn of the century, and I want to get to that stuff as well yeah. as we kind of roll on, but. Um, first, uh, I wanted to ask, is professor kind of like a doctor? Do you have to be called professor or something? Like, <laughs> no. just like when you're a doctor, everybody must call you no, doctor, No, no, right? no, no. Just call me Tom. <laughs> okay, That's fine. Tom. Yeah, yeah. All right. It's not professor Tom. No, it's just no, Tom. no, no. Yeah, Tom's fine. <laughs> okay. Um, why should we as human beings care about architecture and urban design? Well, we spend most of our lives in buildings, right? And we spend the rest of our times when we're not in buildings out in the landscape, we're driving around, what have you, which is basically urban design, uh, whether you're in a big city or a small town. And so um, it's like a fish in water. Uh, it's so pervasive that we often don't see it. We don't study it. We don't even think about it. But we couldn't live without it, right? We need shelter or we would all die. Right. So it's uh, fundamental to us, but because it's so pervasive, we spend so much time in it, most people don't pay much attention to it. Right. So you talk about, um, obviously, we need shelter. So how do you balance aesthetics and design with the utility of actually using a building for shelter? Because obviously, we could all just live in square boxes with no windows, right? So how do you balance the, the ability to use something with how it looks? Well, because uh, it's important in, in terms of how we feel in a building. I mean, we could all just live in windowless rooms, right? But we would feel horrible. Right. And uh, the built environment that we all live in is really about our relationships to each other, which is why I also write about ethics, because it's what are our uh, uh, obligations to each other? What are our responsibilities? Uh, how do we relate to each other? What are our obligations to each other? All of that happens in physical space. And so the built environment is about how we feel, what our uh, rights are, and what our obligations might be. So if you look at uh, architecture and design kind of post-war, mm -hmm. things changed a lot. Like you had kind of the old colonial style, you know, stuff before <laughs> that. And then things radically shifted in the 50s and 60s to more like, uh, you know, you have the big tall structures, mm -hmm. the, the big... Uh, skyscrapers. Yeah, the skyscrapers <laughs> and where people live even, like right, the, yeah. the blocks where people, especially yeah. in England, that was kind of prolific, right. having those big concrete blocks. How does stuff like that affect the way that people feel when they're in something like that or versus living in a, in a better designed environment? Well, there's actually research that shows that if you don't see nature out your window, you're, you're going to actually have um, a higher rate of mental illness, uh, family dysfunction. Uh, and so uh, there's a lot of evidence to show that, in fact, people have to be able to have connections to the natural world, be able to have a window to see something outside. And so um, when we um, make cities Is that, that are, something that's just inherent in human beings in general? Or well, why does that, where does that come from? Sure. I mean, think about us as a species. We uh, are, you know, 200,000 years old. We've only been in cities for about 5% of our time as a species. So we spent most 95% of our time as a species living out in nature. 
And so if we don't see nature, we don't feel good because we're adapted to being in nature. So I think that uh, part of what we need to do in the built environment is try to create environments that are as close to natural as possible. So daylight, natural ventilation, you know, all of the things that we're used to as a species. So how does an urban designer design an environment that caters to that? When, is, when obviously our entire society right now is structured around transportation, it seems like, because yeah. you have to build these grids so everybody can have a car to get to here and there. How do you integrate those feelings and the ability to achieve those feelings and inner peace or whatever you want to call it with the, with the need to transport people around? Well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I've long been interested in transportation because of the fact that we evolved as a tribal group. So we never needed transportation because we moved with our tribal group when we were nomadic. And now we're always still trying to connect to people we care about, and but we now are so distributed across the landscape, we need vehicles in order to get to our friends and family and our right. workplace, right? Um, and so we're still trying to achieve the thing that we evolved in, but now we just have to cover a lot more territory in order to do that. So as an urban designer, how do you strike a balance between, because you guys, as an urban designer in general, uh, or, or the city, has great influence, since we, we've now discussed how much influence these buildings and everything have right. on our psyche, how do you balance that um, with uh, future needs, whether they're seen or unseen with a society? Because it, it basically gives a lot of control then to to a designer. How do you balance like, okay, we really need it to be like this, but we don't want to overexert our control and how, uh -huh. on the outcome of how this is going to be. Right, right. And I think that was a lesson from the last century in my field, which is we tried to over control, over design things. And people need a fair amount of agency, a fair amount of opportunity to create environments by themselves. And so I think, uh, it, you know, the current way we teach design is that you create opportunities for people to customize, to personalize, both their living spaces as well as their built environment generally. Sure. So how do how is urban design and social engineering used together? <laughs> well, I mean, social engineering is an interesting question. I mean, you could argue that the, the post-World War II city was the biggest social engineering experiment in human history. Right. Uh, where we subsidized mortgages, we subsidized highways, we basically uh, created um, opportunities for people to live great distances apart. Uh, and we've never done that before. I mean, human beings have generally lived pretty close to each other. And uh, even and if as you look at the small European cities... Yeah. You walked. Yeah. You walked to work. And sure. we actually did that in, in this country up to the last century. And so this whole idea of having to be car dependent to do everything is a very recent phenomenon and basically is a social experiment on people. Right. So how do you kind of unwind that? Because now we're at the point where cars are completely ubiquitous, right? Right. Um, we're a car enthusiast podcast. So right. in my opinion, the way I look at it is I would love as the... the the highest volume of autonomous cars out there as long as I can still drive what I want to drive. Right. So how do you get there from where we are now? How do you get to a society where um, we kind of fix what we did wrong in the 50s and 60s? Right. Well, that's a great question. I mean, my uh, early work right out of graduate school was looking at the early auto industry where I studied uh, for the Department of the Interior, the early uh, steam and electric car companies that were headquartered in Cleveland as opposed to Ford and the gas car companies, which tended to be headquartered in Detroit. Right. And, um, 
you know, uh, between Ford and Rockefeller, they kind of systematically put both at first the steam car c- uh, companies and then the electric car companies out of business. How did they do that? What was what was well, the how do they get those guys? Because we had those three technologies, right? Combustion engine, right. steam and electric. How did. How did that come to be? How did gas win? Because if you think about it, it shouldn't have. No, it's absolutely. I mean, if, if this was 1910 and we were betting, we would say that um, uh, steam would be the dominant fuel, then electric, and gas would be the you know uh, fuel type for, say, race cars. Uh, they would have been a, like a specialized fuel type, right? Because, uh, you know, all the advertising for, say, white motors and, and Stanley steamers was that you could uh, fill your car up by just stopping by the road, getting some water out of the stream, pouring it into your boiler, and off you went, right? right. And uh, Baker Electric, which was the biggest electric car company, was viewed as the urban car. These were also gendered so that gas cars were for guys. Uh, really? electric, electric cars were generally for women. Why? Where did that come from? Well, and steam cars were for the family. Right. And so and you saw that through the advertising. So all of the Baker Electric ads showed women, which because the electric car was viewed as this fairly slow but very safe vehicle to make little, uh, um, you know, short trips in the city. You didn't have to crank start one of those. Right, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And in fact, a lot of them had a lever. You didn't even have a steering wheel. It was a lever. Okay. Um, meanwhile, all of the steam car companies showed the family going out to nature. And so it was the sort of the weekend car when you left the city. And uh, the gas uh, cars, like Fords, were viewed um, as the fast car that for guys, they were dirty, they were smelly, um, complicated engines. and Just like today. Just like today, <laughs> right. And, you know, I have nothing against gasoline, but right. it's too bad we let those other two fuel types go. Because right. imagine if we continued to develop electric cars since 1910, how much further along we'd be. The only reason that really that someone like me as a petrol head loves the gasoline engine (laughs) is the sound and everything like that. But if no one had ever been exposed to that, we would never have known really. So then you'd have these electric cars that would be out there and we'd already be way farther than we are with the development of it. And you know, that would probably in theory, I don't like to admit it, but it would probably be better for everybody. Well, think about it. Let's say we had all three fuel types, and let's say two of them were not basically polluting because steam cars just gave off water vapor, right? right? And so, you know, we have about a third of the air pollution that we have now because, let's say, gas-powered cars would have been about a third of the fleet. Right. I mean, it didn't happen that way. but So at the time, was it anything having to do with, obviously— um, Unless you're finding a, a, a lake or something to fill up your steam car, <laughs> yeah. or you're finding some way to charge up your electric car, you're really not going that far back No, then, right? right. But again, people live more close together. And so this idea of suburban sprawl was not a phenomenon. People, Nobody's going from Pittsburgh to Cleveland ex- every day. Exactly, right. And if you went from Pittsburgh to Cleveland, you took a train. So there was yet another kind of vehicle that was for inner city travel, right? Okay. So we had a whole train infrastructure that we also took apart. And even in the city, we had whole trolley infrastructure. What happened to the trolley in Minneapolis? The, I've heard rumors that there was a tire company that basically forced out the trolley company here. Do you know anything about what happened to the trolley system in Minneapolis? I don't know about Minneapolis, but I do know that there was a connection between Greyhound and General Motors. Okay. And they systematically put the trolley systems out of business in one city after another. And again, that's a shame. I mean, if we had left our trolley system in place... Um, we, again, would have been much further along. We've had to spend a lot of money putting uh, light rail lines back into cities, right? right? So we had a much 
wider range of mobility options 100 years ago than what we have today. And uh, only now are we discovering the value of multimodal transportation. Right. So how do we... So for someone like me, when you look at the car, you see it as a representation of freedom, right? right? So I see my ability to get in my car and have freedom to travel, to go wherever I want and go, wow, this is really great. This is, it represents quite a bit for me. Sure. And when I see something like the Met Council be like, all right, there's no more drive-throughs. There's not going to be any more city parking and all the things they want to do to try and get rid of cars. You kind of see it as an affront to your, to the liberty that you've, you've, uh, you hold on to when you have a car. Right. So how do you, how do you convince someone like me (laughs) Otherwise, well, you know, we will still have cars, right? Um, What's happening is that 100 years ago, we took an animal out of our transportation system, which is horses, because cars were cheaper, safer, and cleaner than horses. And we're just taking another animal out of our transportation system, which is us. Right. Because uh, autonomous vehicles are cheaper, safer, and cleaner than when we drive. That that doesn't mean we still won't have vehicles. There'll be still a lot of uh, vehicles with one person or a few people in them driving around. It's simply that we won't have to drive. So uh, you will still have all are of you, as As a urban planner, are you okay with there still being a steering wheel in the car that I'm going to be able to drive if I want to? Well, you will be able to drive... Uh, for a while, but eventually you're not going to be able to afford to drive because the reason we went from horses to cars was that it got increasingly expensive to continue to drive, to have a horse. Insurance flips this, right? So if you shrink the base of the high risk pool, the rates go up. And when there's a cheaper alternative, more and more people jump, right? right? And so people who had horses realized their cars were cheaper, safer, and cleaner. Well, why wouldn't you go there? And so the only people by the 1920s who had horses were the very rich. Right. And eventually they were banned in cities, and then the rich moved their horses out to the countryside. So they would then drive out to their stables out in the countryside and ride their horses around. The same thing will happen in the next 10 to 20 years, which is that people will still drive cars. You just won't be able to drive it in the city. It, will it be, I'm, my thought is, is that you'll have like a, here we have the 494, 694 loop. And I feel like at some point it's not going to be legal to drive your combustion engine car or drive it all within that loop. Just oh. because there's too much congestion, you just won't be allowed to. Absolutely. I mean, and, and Angela Merkel said that in 20 years, you're going to need a government permit to drive in Germany. And she didn't mean a driver's license. She meant a permit to drive in Germany in 20 years. How is she reconciling that with the fact that her entire country is based on the automotive industry? They must be terrified. Well, because the automotive industry will still be there. There'll still be a BMW and a Mercedes. In fact, Mercedes is on top of this. They're, they recognize that they're not car companies. They're mobility service providers. Mm-hmm. And they're becoming mobility service companies. Yeah, that seems to be the buzzword that everybody's picking up Well, on. because they can make a lot more money and it will be a lot cheaper for us to have them drive us wherever we want to go. We basically will have automated chauffeurs picking us up and dropping us off wherever we want to go. So do you think there's still a case to be made for people like me in 15, 20 years that still want to drive? Uh, sure. I mean, there are people who have horses and take and still ride their horses around. There will still be people who will uh, drive cars. We'll still have car races the way we have horse races. Basically, everything we do with horses now, we will do with drivers in cars in 20 years. So if you really want to do that, it'll probably be an expensive hobby. Uh, you'll be able to do it out in the country. Um, you won't be able to come into the city with your car because you will be too dangerous. 
And that's why insurance drives this, is that drivers are simply too dangerous to be on the roads. So you're thinking, what kind of time frame are you thinking for this? Because I know that um, California and stuff like that, it would work to have an autonomous car. But here in Minnesota, that's going to be a tough, tough, tough road. I mean, we've got snow, salt, ice all over the roads, everything else like that. I mean... yeah. Is it really possible? Well, uh, so we went from um, almost no cars to no horses in about 20-year period from about mm, early 20th century to in the 1920s, right? And there was World War I that actually slowed that whole process down. So a much slower economy with a war in the middle, and we still flipped it in about 20 to 25 years. And so our economy moves much faster. Let's hope we don't have a war. Uh, and so I, I think uh, we'll see within 20, 25 years uh, this flip happen. So do you think this is going to be something that will happen kind of naturally with, with uh, in terms of a capitalistic sense of supply and demand? Or do you think it's going to be something that the government is going to have to regulate into existence? No, in fact, if anything, the government is way behind. This is a private sector-driven transformation, as happened 100 years ago. These are the car companies who are driving this because they're going to be able to make much more money and provide transportation for us at a much lower cost. Rather than trying to convince us every year or two to buy one of their cars, they're going to be interacting with us every day as a service provider. And so once we're in their vehicle... Are you thinking nobody's even going to own a car? Is everybody just going to be leasing? these machines? We won't own cars because, I mean, right now, an autonomous vehicle is somewhere between four dollars and $500,000. So right. who's going to buy one, right? Um, and so we will have mobility service contracts, um, and there'll probably be different levels of service. You can have the basic or you can have, you know, kind of higher-end amenity services. Uh, and um, once we're in their vehicle, they can also sell us other kinds of services, and or they can be advertising based. So some of the car, I should say some of the mobility service companies um, uh, are thinking of a subscription model where you would have an annual subscription to say Ford or GM and they would provide you whatever mobility you need. Actually, Waymo, which is the Google or Alphabet yep. car company, is thinking of an advertiser based model, which is if you're willing to sit in the vehicle and watch advertising on a small screen, the ride itself is free. That sounds like some sort of dystopian future that I've seen well, many times where you've got the guy that's yeah. there with his eyes glued to the Waymo screen and I'm behind him in like a 67 Chevelle as a total rebel, you yeah, know, yeah. trying to plow through. I mean, just think what it's going to be for, I'm not saying I would do this. Maybe I would do this. Mm-hmm. I would take out my old car yeah. and I would go, I'm going to go drive into the city tonight. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you yeah. just go and you bomb and you rip around the city. And it's going to be this whole rebel culture, I think, sure. that will spawn out of this. Anytime you tell people you can't do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to immediately have a, a culture that says, well, yes, I can. Sure, sure. Well, I mean, you'll get arrested, um, but, <laughs> but that's fine. I mean, it would be like saying, you know, what the hell? I'm going to take my horse and I'm going to ride my horse down the middle of Fifth Avenue, right? You can do that. Yeah. I mean, you'll probably get arrested for riding your horse down Fifth Avenue, but you can go do that. I bet there was people that did that kind of Absolutely. In, the, in the time as, as things crossed over. I uh, bet there were people doing that. Absolutely. In fact, there are photos I've seen where in the 1930s, you still saw the occasional person on a horse in the city. And even when they had been banned, you would occasionally see that. And I think they probably decided, well, do we arrest this guy or do we just let him go, you know? But eventually by the 1940s, I mean, that was just a kooky, crazy, stupid thing to do. I mean, right. your horse would get killed because it would get hit, right? So there will be a transition where there will be people who will resist this change, but this is not a government mandate. In fact, if anything, 
I'm a little frustrated that the public sector hasn't sort of taken this more seriously. I was meeting with a group of public sector officials this morning talking about this, and they all have a very wait and see attitude. And I said, you know, this is coming really quickly right at you. And why aren't they moving? Because normally you see if you see if you see a way to make people safer and you see a way to help insurance companies, usually it seems like the government's right there. Right there, yeah. So what's the deal? Well, because they're dependent on what their constituents are concerned about. And because we don't see many autonomous vehicles being driven around. uh, That's because there's theoretically not any such thing yet. In theory, although yeah. a lot of this technology is it's already close, is already in vehicles, right? Yep. The cars that can park themselves mm-hmm. and cars that can drive themselves on highways. So that technology is actually already in cars, but because people ha- aren't aware of it, they're not demanding that the government do anything. And so there's very much a wait and see. So is it because they don't want to be responsible for anything coming up with legislation that ends up having to be turned around later or what? I think, I think that's part of it. I think they're also worried about the impact because this is going to uh, affect municipal and state budgets. You know, we get a lot of money from the gas tax. These vehicles are going to be electrically fueled because once you, once the car companies make them and have to maintain them, they're going to go with the simplest engine, which is the electric engine, right? Right. And um, so they're going to lose money on gas tax. Uh, Municipalities are going to lose money on parking tickets and traffic tickets and all of this other revenue that they're getting from driver cars. And I think they're worried about how they're going to make up that lost revenue. Yeah, I would usually the, yeah, when tax revenue goes away, yeah. that's not a good thing for for them. So, how what would you do? What are some of the main things you would do in an urban city like Chicago, Minneapolis, whatever to make it more uh, a future looking? Like what are some of the first steps that you could take and then maybe what are some of the longer steps that you can take? Well, that's a good question. I mean, I think initially these vehicles will be on certain high traveled roads. And um, I mean, one of the things that we're studying at my center at the University of Minnesota is that the road itself is going to have to change. So when we went from horses to cars, we had to change our whole street infrastructure because, I mean, the early photos of of cars driving on roads built for horses and they were just rutted. Yeah, Yeah, it was just muddy and rutted, right? And so we started to pave roads and we put in our curb and gutter storm sewer systems, all of which have become normalized now, but those were that was a whole new infrastructure. It turns out that the autonomous vehicles are very precise. So unlike drivers who wander across the road surface, they follow the same path right. over and over again. So there's repetitive wear on the road surface. And we're seeing evidence that within weeks, they start to rut, but particularly bituminous roads. Okay. And which means that the road of the future may not be a continuous surface. It may be reinforced concrete tracks where the vehicles go which means the rest of the road could be grass or gravel, which means that uh, water falling on the road could actually percolate down into the soil. We don't right. have to have storm sewer systems. That uh, opens up the just the concept that we talked about in the beginning of being able to see nature. If you can see uh, yeah. you know, green you know, or, uh, as you're driving around, that wouldn't be so bad. Grassy streets, right? Yeah. yeah, yeah. I used to live in a house in New Haven, Connecticut, which it had a dry, my driveway with two concrete tracks and it yeah. had grass in between. Well, that's always the, the postcard moment, right? Yeah. For like the house in the East Coast or the South with the two tracks that go down. Yeah. Um, so... What else uh, is going to be coming in terms of 
near future for us in urban environments besides maybe just a little bit of a restructuring for the roads? Well, I think that uh, we're going to see a whole change in our transit system. Uh, you know, I think in, in dense cities, we'll still see fixed rail, light rail lines because they're really efficient at moving a lot of people. But for example, the fixed route um, bus is probably going to disappear. Because one of the other things about this is the mobility service companies are part of this larger sharing economy transformation that's happening. And what are the, one of the ways to think about that is it's squeezing out all the inefficiency of the 20th century. We overproduced everything, right? We overproduced seats and cars, which is what Uber and Lyft have recognized sure. in seeing that those are revenue streams. Well, we have way too many empty buses being driven around in the middle of the night with nobody on them, right? right. And so what we're going to see is a, a move to on-demand transit systems, where in lower density areas, you'll call up a vehicle to pick you up. It might be, uh, you know, it might be a mobility service provider or it might be a public transit system, but it might be a van that picks you up because there's just not that much demand in a certain location. So we're going to see transit itself change uh, where there'll be uh, a lot of first and last mile um, travel to uh, denser corridors where there then be, you know, buses and trains. So I think the only problem I see with the comparison between the horse and what's happening now is back in the day, you could still get on your horse anytime you wanted, uh -huh. and you could go ride out into the open wild west if you wanted to. You right. could go wherever you wanted, whenever you wanted. When you look at the autonomous car structure, you start being limited to um, the infrastructure. You're limited by the infrastructure that's provided to you. And I know that that's probably the big resistance for people, especially for people like me that are, you know, just want to be able to do whatever we want. Sure. It, it's maybe to the detriment of society, but at the same point, um, what are we missing out on psychologically as human beings if that if we're suddenly beholden to like an infrastructure or yeah. or these these rules that have been set in, in in these environments that you have to you have to use this service to get here you're not responsible for yourself anymore you're beholden to someone else's service well i think it's going to demand that we reinterpret what we mean by freedom right so you mentioned the freedom to get in your car and drive right, right. and that's one kind of freedom but when you're behind that wheel you're not free You've got to pay attention to the road, right? Sure. So you're sitting in that car for, you know, however long, and uh, you're anything but free, right? So, you know... That might be subjective. And that might be subjective, yeah, but you still have to pay attention to the road, Correct. right? You yes. can't be texting, you right. can't be sleeping, right? You should not. You should not. I some people yeah. might feel differently. That's <laughs> right, right. So, you know, an autonomous... So basically what autonomous vehicles offer us is a chauffeur. Basically, you get picked up, and the time you spend in that vehicle, you can do anything you want. And that's a different kind of freedom, right? And yet the, the AVs do not necessarily uh, limit your ability to go anywhere you want. I mean, you get, as, as is true now with Uber and Lyft, you get into an Uber and Lyft, you said, take me wherever, and they will take you wherever you want to go, right? And frequently, they'll pick you up as fast as it, as it would be, take you to, say, walk to your car and get it out of a parking ramp. Sure. So, you know, it's relatively... Um, a, a, quick and efficient, and they will drive you wherever you want to go. Uh, and the, so the same thing will happen. If you want to go out to the country, take a long drive, autonomous vehicles will be happy to take you out to wherever you want to go. And you'll have time for yourself. You're not going to be stuck paying attention to the road. As uh, I'm not sure, do you, do you enjoy driving? 
Let me let me ask. Do you do you enjoy getting in a car and going for a drive? Is that something that does it for you? If I'm not in traffic, yes. Yeah. So so you get the feeling of being in control of the of the machine sure. and having the machine be an extension of yourself. And if people are seeking that, that part's going to disappear completely. No, it will. Just be, you'll you'll have your autonomous vehicle take you out to the country where you will get into your driver car and you can drive out in the country as much as you want. As um, long as you can afford it. As long as you can. So, well, it's like a horse. Right. I mean, a it horse just becomes is a, something that's reserved for, for the rich or the rebellious. Yeah, exactly. It's like a horse. I mean, it's expensive. It will be expensive, but if it means a lot to you, nobody's going to, you'll find, gonna, a, way you'll find a way to make it work. And it yeah. doesn't matter if you like it or not, because this is basically the way things are going to be. Well, the, right. I mean, we have to, you know, I tell people, I'm like, Hey, we have to accept that this is what's going to happen. We can throw fits. We can throw our arms in the air. We can do whatever we want, but this is the way that it's going to be. And if we, and if we want to be able to do what we're going to do, we need to find a way to talk to legislatures or the people that are in charge to find a way that will allow us to do what we want to do within the confines of what the larger society is going to do with or without us. Well, it'll be interesting because as I said, this is a private sector driven transformation. This is right. not the government. Absolutely. Right? I, have, I agree with you there. Right, right. And so, you know, soon you will find that the vehicle companies will not even sell you a car. <laughs> so you can say, yeah, I'm going to yeah. drive my car, but if nobody is going to sell you a car, you've got a problem, right? Because right. they are going to move to become mobility service providers. Now, they'll still make cars, but they want to own them because they can make much more money if they continue to own them and offer you mobility. Do you think you're going to see some sort of... Uh cultural backlash like you kind of have with the digital age with people buying record players uh, sure. and all that kind of stuff where people are going to just, they're going to want a button to push or oh, yeah. something to touch or feel or, or, or do. I mean, I think that that is almost inevitable with all of this. Yeah. I mean, and who knows? I mean, maybe autonomous vehicles will give you the simulation of driving so you can still get that rush, even though it will be a, uh, you know, basically a fake version of driving. Oh, I would fight that all uh, day long. Of course, long. <laughs> I, I suspect you would. I, and most people probably would as well. As an urban designer, what are the, civically, what are the benefits for proper urban design versus bad urban design? How does bad urban design affect people? Well, um, I mean, just look out most windows. I mean, we have created environments that are actually very car oriented. And so they're unpleasant to walk in or ride your bike in or do anything else in. Right. Um, and they've kind of isolated us. So we don't interact with our neighbors the way maybe we could or should. Do you think when it's autonomous cars are back, a lot of this infrastructure is going to be ripped up in, in lieu of something else? Yeah. I mean, we're looking at, um, you know, what's going to be like the parking lot of the future. So these vehicles won't park very much. Right. And so, um, imagine all the, they're not we, making money for anybody if they're parked. Exactly. Right. right. And so 30% on average of our land area is devoted to parking cars. So what are we going to do with that 30% of the land? Well, we can build affordable housing. We can put in green space. We can, you name it, in recreation space. So there's going to be a lot more space available for people to interact, uh, which is now devoted to storing these vehicles 90 plus percent of their time. Is there kind of a general cost or it would it would be for a city of Minneapolis over a period of time to make this transition? Do we have kind of an estimate of what this might cost taxpayers? Well, we have, we're sort of working on that right now and we're looking at, well, you know, it will be expensive to change our infrastructure to the new kinds of roads and as it was a hundred years ago. Um, however, look at the cost savings. We think we we'll, won't need a storm sewer system anymore. 
In other words, we will handle water very differently. 30% more land, you can build a lot more tax generating property um, that is taxed at a much higher rate than a parking lot. Sure. Uh, and so there'll be other kinds of revenues uh, that will compensate for parking tickets and traffic tickets. So we think in the end, this will be a huge uh, financial boon for the public sector, but there will be a transition. So kind of a general um, architecture question. It seems like if you look at historically relevant architecture mm -hmm. over the course of history, it appears that most of these are built as uh, monuments to institutions, uh -huh. whether it's huge government buildings as right. a Nazi, like megalomaniacal architecture or, or religion with huge churches and stuff like that. And they've used their shape and design to exert power or authoritarianism. <laughs> over time. In modern society, how do we build urban areas that function for a society rather than as monuments to government, religion, or education at great cost to the society? Yeah, well, I mean, that's a great question. I mean, I do think that there's increasing skepticism of big, powerful institutions generally, skepticism about government, skepticism about institutions. And so we're actually looking at, uh, you know, developments now where uh, instead of those big sort of monumental bombastic buildings, uh, there's much more of an idea of, <coughs> excuse me, of um, creating what we call urban fabric, which are, uh, you know, cities where there's a much greater mix of uses and um, actually much more like the traditional cities that we used to build 200, 300 years ago. Um, I mean, I think what's also, to me, really interesting about the sharing economy, about autonomous vehicles, um, is that we create urban forms based on the economies that we're in, right? So suburbia was the perfect urban form for the post-World War II economy, where we came out of World War II, the dominant economy, with so much productive capacity that we needed an urban form that required everyone to own a car, everyone to own a lawnmower, everyone to own a washing machine. We basically had to create a consumer economy. And Eisenhower uh, built a freeway. Yeah, like and built freeways. We, we just built, in fact, we overbuilt. And so what we're now realizing is in the sharing on-demand economy, where people increasingly don't want to own things, they just want to pay for what they access, is that that's going to lead to a different kind of urban form. And what that is leading to already, you start to see this in cities, is people are want to live in close together or closer together in more walkable communities in smaller um, living units and more shared space. Um, so that- Do you see kind of the, you know, with people like using things instead of owning <clears throat> things, do you think you see it? I see a loss of private property as a bad thing because uh -huh. I see private property <clears throat> as like a representation of um, my time, sure. right? So I get time, I get money, I buy these private property things. Yeah. What do you see people doing with the <clears throat> the time and the, the, the treasure that they've earned with their talents if they're not- buying anything tangible or owning a house or, or owning private property in general? Well, I think that it's, you know, this kind of shift. Uh, I mean, it's a great question. Uh, I mean, I, I just moved into a new house and I look at all my books. I don't look at my books much anymore because so much is online. But they're, they're a representation of they something are. you did. I know, exactly. So I, I, exactly. <laughs> so I have a hard time getting rid of them, right? right? But I realize that, you know, having all this physical stuff around is not necessarily particularly practical or even useful to me anymore. And I think that what we're seeing is that as we move into, as the digital revolution really moves into a much more mature phase where there's virtually anything you need is on demand and available to you digitally, 
it really is raising the question about how much stuff we actually need. Maybe the things you do have will become more precious. Absolutely. The things you do have will be heirlooms. They'll be the things that you really care about, right? And I think this is deeply resonant with us because, again, keep in mind that we've only been in cities for about 5% of our time as a species. So 95% of our time, we were nomadic. I'm glad that's not me anymore. I know. Wandering around in a loincloth exactly. with notebooks. And we're not going to do that anymore. <laughs> but the digital world, the mobile digital devices we have in front of us enable us to be nomadic in a new kind of way, right? right. So we're not going to live in huts, you know, or in caves. We're, but on the other hand, we're going to live more lightly because we simply don't need to have so much stuff with us. Well, Tom, I really appreciate you coming on. Uh, it's, it's been very insightful. I hope you got to get a word in edgewise. I, I think <laughs> yeah. everybody's probably going to learn quite a bit. Yeah, good. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thanks. Take care yeah. of yourself. Yeah, bye-bye. So what did you think of the interview with Tom? Very interesting. He is much smarter than you and me. <laughs> well, thanks for throwing yourself in there. I really, really appreciate that. Um, I liked hearing about the uh, the horse argument, though I don't know We've that it necessarily... That before. I don't know that it necessarily applies anymore. It's certainly not a direct translation, I don't think. No, I think it's a little overused, but I do understand where he's coming from. Yeah, it, uh, it's certainly interesting. Um, one thing that's probably less polarizing is Petrobox. Yeah, let's talk about it. Petrobox is a monthly subscription service specifically for the automotive enthusiasts. And I keep saying Christmas is right around the corner, holiday season. This would make really the best gift, I think, for a car guy in your life or for yourself. Each month, these guys carefully select items, including tools, detailing supplies, apparel, garage gear, stickers, and they send it right there to your doorstep. And there's actually two different levels of subscription to choose from. You have the Petrobox Basic, which costs less than 20 bucks a month. It's $19.95. And then you also have the Petrobox Premium, which gets you even more gear for $39.95 a month. Be sure to check them out at mypetrolbox.com. That's M-Y-P-E-T-R-O-L-B-O-X.com. And use the code OVERCREST at checkout to get an additional $6 off your first month. And I keep forgetting to talk about this, Chris. Each month when you subscribe, they give away a set of rotiform wheels to one of their subscribers. All right. So... As I'm sitting here listening to you read that, I was thinking about Tom a little bit more. And one of the things that was really interesting that I wanted him to talk about is how basically urban design affects human beings. Sure. And it affects how they interact with each other, their happiness, everything about it. Like you look at some of the um, megalomaniacal buildings that have been built, they're very imposing or, you know, stacking people on top of each other in apartment buildings is not necessarily done anymore because it's right. been seen as detrimental to society. It ends up being a blight on society. And I'm wondering if there's going to be any future issues with the, what they're wanting to do with cities now, like the just basically car-free cities and stuff mm -hmm. like that. And I just, you know, that's one of the things that I think we need to think about is trying not to set up, um, trying not to do things too permanently for a society that's always in flux. Because I feel like that's what we do is we have these ideas that come up and then you have permanent, what's seen as permanent solutions for them. And then everything has to get ripped up and changed and costs a ton of money, a ton of capital, a ton of uh, blood and treasure to get everything changed over. Because it's going to think about what he says about having a road with just grass, you know, where it's just the water runoff can just go. You're going to rip up. You're thinking about the city of Minneapolis or Chicago or something. Miles and miles. How is this going to work in New York? Yeah. Where it's just a labyrinth Massive. of sewers. And I mean, it's just some of this stuff just seems kind of. I don't know, man. That doesn't really seem like it's reasonable 
to expect that to be able to happen as fast as everybody thinks EV and autonomous cars are going to happen. Well, that we just talked about in our news episode last week that, or I'm sorry, our news episode that's, that's coming in up the on, future on Monday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, how really autonomous cars aren't going to reduce traffic at all. Yeah, that'll be an interesting for for everybody. Anyway, that's that's it. That's our interview with Tom. I think it was. It was really enlightening for me just to hear a different perspective, and I hope it was for you guys, too. Um, head over to patreon.com slash overcrest and uh, support the show. If you like this show, tell your friends. Don't be a jerk. You know, Share it. You know, share and spread the is, word. Sharing is caring. And uh, leave us a five-star review on iTunes if you haven't yet. Yes. If everybody did that, that would be just like this monumental shift for us. And there's thousands of you listening, and we have like 250 reviews or 200 reviews or something like that. Something like, like that. Which is really good, but yeah. we should have more. So head over there and do it. And, and uh, hey, rest assured, I read them all. We do. We look at them. We love them. Some of them are quite funny. We yes. should go through and pick a few that we really <laughs> like. That's it, guys. We'll see you next week. Take care.